That's a good goal. To exalt our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. We exist to bring praise and glory to the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we bow before you this morning again, or continue to bow before you, Lord. We've never stopped bowing before you this morning, acknowledging your greatness, that you are our Lord and Master. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you that for what you continue to do in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would desire the desires of your heart. I pray, Father, that we would be granted by the Spirit of God eyes to see what could be. I pray, Father, that you might put a holy restlessness in us until we find our complete rest and peace in you and our goals and our vision to be in line with yours. So, Father, I ask this morning that you would grant us a fresh awareness of your heart, what your goals and your vision are for us. Thank you for the rich privilege it is now to have the very words of God spoken into our hearts by your word, by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, now that our lives would be uh, in preparation and anticipation for the good things that you want to um, convey to us this morning. I pray, Father, that you would grant uh, your servant the uh, clarity and awareness of exactly what it is we need to hear from you this morning, and that, Lord, um, your powerful work would be done among us. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I learned in a past life, and I don't mean a reincarnation thing or something, but I did have a life before pastoring, as you know, and it was, uh, for some of you who might not know, it was in the arena of sales. And one of the things that I learned is just because you thought you made a sale and the person said that they were going to buy such and such, whether it be real estate or advertising and then things that I had experience in, did not mean that the sale was going to close. In fact, uh, regularly I sold the same thing over and over again to the same person until they finally actually bought it. That's just the way it is. Sometimes we uh, get all excited and enthusiastic first hearing something, and then we go away and we develop buyer's remorse, they call it, and we actually don't want to go through with the sale. And, and I have this distinct concern on my heart that while we were all excited and enthusiastic last week about the great things that God wants to do in our lives and in our hearts, it's highly possible as we walk out of this place and spend the week that there are a number of possibilities that have cropped up that would erode away that enthusiasm and excitement. So I find myself back before you this morning with an approach that may be another resell of the things that I really believe God is going to continue to tell us in the book of Nehemiah. So some of this is going over the same ground, but I think uh, as with most of my sermons that you forget when you leave anyway, it'll sound new to you uh, this morning because it is new. Um, I, I think one of the questions that, therefore, is what is it that we're building again? 
Just let's make sure we know exactly what we're doing. I don't want anybody to be confused about this. Uh, the, the worst possible thing is that we would leave here and think, oh, there's new restrictions, new rules, new legalism around. Uh, coming off of the book of Galatians, nothing could be more horrifying to me. This is not about that. This is fundamentally about abundant living that Jesus Christ wants to grant to us. And I want to say that to you in a variety of different ways this morning. But um, what is it that we're building once again? And I, I want to make sure that we, we see that this is also a, a concept that has moved itself very firmly into the New Testament. So uh, to begin with this morning, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to show you something there. You know that for the last eight plus months, we have been establishing that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our lives in every possible way. He is, Jesus Christ is the um, foundation of all we are and all we ever will be. And, and we've spent a lot of time uh, developing that. And I want to point out to you that the Apostle Paul in, in the New Testament, and Nehemiah is, is a companion to this, takes us on the journey of uh, now what? Now that you've established that Jesus Christ is the all in all of your life and that he is the foundation of all that you are and all that you ever will be, what do you do with that in a practical way? Well, I want to point out to you that this is precisely what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, starting at verse 9. Although I'm starting into the end of a paragraph for, for the purposes that what I want to show you, I'm, I, I want to start here, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Ah, there's a nice link with our building project in Nehemiah. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Well, I, I think the, um, the intention here of the Lord is very obvious to us, but let's make sure that we see this, that we've established in the book of Galatians, in our time together, that Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything we are and everything we will be. The question that is outstanding in our lives in light of all of that is what are we going to build on that foundation? The expectation is that we are going to be builders. We are going to be fellow workers with the Lord. That's what he says here. We are going to build on that foundation. And the question is what are we going to build on that foundation? More particularly, with what quality of building material are we going to use? You'll notice here he talks about such things as gold, silver, Precious stones or costly stones or wood, hay, and straw. Building materials for the building. And what is the building? 
Well, he tells us in verse 16 and 17 what the building is. The building is the temple of the living God. And then he tells us what the temple of the living God is right now. It's you and me, the people who the Spirit of God lives in, believers, followers of Jesus Christ. And he uses here the kind of language of the materials of building a temple. When they were building a temple in the Old Testament, the question is, what kind of materials were they using? What kind of value? What, kind of, what was the quality of what they were building? And they were using gold and costly stones and silver to build the temple. Why? So that the temple could withstand fire. We don't need to really take this into some sort of big metaphorical sense. We can actually use the real practical sense here. If you build with wood or you build with hay or you build with straw, it will burn. And so we have to ask ourselves in the terms of building, as fellow builders with God, building our lives, building the lives of our family, what kind of building material are we using? That's what Nehemiah is really addressing in terms of strengthening the walls of neglected faith and shoring up the doors that were previously burned down. It's not the quantity that we're talking about here, but the quality that God will, that, that, that God will not look at our busyness favorably if we have neglected the quality of what we are building. And you all know very simply what burns and what doesn't burn. And if you don't know, I'll tell you what burns and what doesn't burn. Your house will burn. Your possessions, most of them will burn. Your cottages will burn. Your toys will burn. All of that stuff will burn. But what won't burn is the hearts of your children, your own heart, the things that last for eternity. And so the question is, are you building in your family in such a way as you're treating your household as if it's a temple of the living God? Because if you are, you'll be building with gold and silver and costly stones. That indicates what kind of a building project you're engaged in. When people see someone building with gold, silver, and costly stones, they said, oh, you're building a temple. You're building something that will exalt and magnify the glory of God. If they're building with wood, hay, and so you're just building a house. You're just building a place where you can sleep. You're just building a place where you can keep rain off your head. And so what Nehemiah is addressing, what we're addressing over this series is the, is the nature of your building. Not that you're building. What are you building? And what value, what, what are the building materials that you're using in this building, in this great and grand building project? So what about the temple building in your own homes? Are you confident that that spiritual work is so strong that it can stand the firestorm? Would you, would you love to have a, a, um, a visit from the Lord Jesus Christ himself to come and inspect the temple? Would you, would you be ready for that? You say, Lord, Lord, come and inspect the temple, or would it be a, a flurry of activity, clean up on aisle four before the Lord gets here? Can your house, can your heart, can the hearts of your children stand up to the tests of authenticity? Or do they cave in at every invitation of the flesh? Or date every temptation? In church and in the home, there is a single call upon us, and that is to be disciple makers. That's what Jesus has called us to do. Go and make disciples. It's a very single 
minded focus of the Lord. In fact, I can, I can reduce the complexity of Christian parenting for you to one sentence. As a Christian parent, Christian parenting is disciple making. That's what it is. Regardless of all of the other, so, so it's a re, it really simplifies per parenting. You don't need a bunch of books. You don't need to read Benjamin Spock. He'll never tell you this. He's kind of out of print now, isn't he? He's out of favor anyway. I'm really dating myself. Most people in here haven't even heard of Benjamin Spock. Good for you. He'll wreck your life. Parenting, Christian parenting, is disciple-making. So it's a very simple thing. When the child wants to do this or do that or, or think this or think that, the questions are quite simple. Would this honor the Lord Jesus Christ? Is this what Christ wants us to do? That's how you parent as a Christian. It's just disciple-making. Now, that's not simple. That's tough. But that's what we want to talk about, what, what this is really all about. And so it's about our homes. And, and we all together collectively have this great passion and desire that all of the people in Durham region would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're evangelistically zealous. But first, before we can really, really make an amazing impact in the region that we live in. I think Redpath, Alan Redpath is right when he says there must be victory in the place of past failure before the doors will ever open to spheres of wider service. I think he's absolutely right that, that he's implying that we're only as strong as our weakest among us. So we better fix our own place. We better fix our own church. We better fix our own homes before we take on the world. Now, I'm not sure how you left last week, and as you process some of the things that we talked about, maybe some of you weren't here, I, I trust that you would go online and listen so you can keep up with where the church is at, because we're going on this journey together. But maybe some of you are feeling overwhelmed or discouraged, or some are excited or fired up, or maybe some of you are defensive about what you heard or unnerved by what you're up against. Let's be honest, the status quo is always easier. Reform will take everything you have and more. It always does. But we are not a hospice. Calvary Baptist Church is not a hospice. We have not been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this to make sure that we get people from salvation to eternity as comfortable and as, as warm and cuddly and cozy as we can. We aren't a hospice. We're an army advancing the cause of the living Christ. Taking back prisoners who've been held all their lives by the fear of death and bringing them into the kingdom of God's amazing light. We are called to take people who basically live with a sense of hospice and rescue them out of that. That they might, in fact, face reality and the, the, the life that they live. So where do we go from here? I'm presuming that some spiritual walkabout has taken place in your life this past week. So where do we go from here? I want to share with you five quick questions this morning that I hope will start us in the process of moving forward on this adventure together. We've surveyed the landscape, but how do we get started? How do we really make this thing roll ahead that's what we want to look at today, because it is very possible to become very comfortable and complacent in the spiritual dysfunction that we live in, 
and we don't see or don't notice the way things are. You see, as Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah's vision of, uh, um, Richard Horsley and I talked about this last week, uh, Nehemiah's vision of, of Jerusalem was scripturally based. He'd never seen it himself. He had been a captive his whole life. He had never been to the homeland. So his vision of what Jerusalem and what the temple was like was based fundamentally on the excellence and glory of the scriptures. Can you imagine as he rode into Jerusalem and he took a look, how discouraging it looked, how, how, how hurt and broken he felt. But the people who were living there, they'd been living with this mess for years. For 140 years, the boulders had been down in the valley. The walls were wrecked. The temple was no, no uh, great shakes. They just learned to live with it. That's what happens with dysfunction. You just learn to get along with it, and you stop having eyes to see the mess around you. But when someone finally looks into the word of God and sees the vision of God and sees the glory of God and sees what God wants for you, what I'm talking about to you over this series is not about, about uh, making your life miserable. This is, this is about having a fresh vision of what abundant living could be like. This is, uh, this is taking for granted the possibilities that we've been living with a certain level of dysfunction spiritually and learning to get along with it. And it may be generational. And, and we read that Jesus came to bring us life and came to bring, bring it to us more abundantly, and we really don't even know what that looks like until someone rides in and tells us, this is what God says it looks like. This is what it could be like. Could you dream this way? Dream a reality that God has for you and has for every single believer. We're all on that journey. I'm on that journey. I want to be there. I want to know what it is to experience the fullness of God's abundance in my life. And, and I want you to come with me. And that's what Nehemiah, as he rides in, he says, enough with this spiritual dysfunction and this complacency so that the Holy Spirit might give us new eyes to see. So here's the first question that I think must be faced in all of our lives, and that is this. What have you allowed to drift into disrepair? Some of what's going on in our lives that dissatisfies God is not so much intentional or high-handed. It's just because we've become lazy or loose about things. And certain things have just drifted into disrepair. The certain things have fallen off the wall and we haven't even noticed it. We've been in the smell of culture so long that we don't any longer smell the stink of what it really is. What you used to have. Think about what you maybe used to have. The, the psalmist writes, I, I remember the days with fondness when we used to go uh, climb to Jerusalem with joy in our hearts and we looked forward to. Remember what it was in, in the days when maybe you had some sort of fired up spiritual rhythm in your life that you've lost, that you just simply let drift out of your life. That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about here. What have you simply allowed to let fall away? The good stuff that you once had, once you used to grab your Bible and consume it and read it with a passion, you used to love your prayer time with God. You couldn't wait to shut yourself into the prayer closet and just speak to God. What are those things that you've just let fall away? The disappearing act here at Calvary is disturbing. People are here for a while and then they're gone. 
I'm not so disturbed if they find themselves into a great evangelical church somewhere. That's okay. It's a great church of God. What I am desperately, desperately burdened about is for the most part, that's not what happens. They just drift away from Jesus. Think about the people who you don't see anymore, who you knew at one time you went to worship, you went to war for God together, you did battalion together, you did brigade together, you did pioneer girls together, you prayed together, you sung together. They just drift away. So stuff has drifted away, but sometimes we've torn stuff down. What have you actually torn down in your lives? We tear down, we model badly in front of our children so many things. We tear down authority, we tear down respect, we tear down love, we tear down esteem, we tear down church, we tear down church leaders, we tear down our marriages, we tear down relationships, we, we allow our tongues to be on the loose. We just let it all cave in. And then one day we stand, after we've been criticizing the church and the church leader criticizing the pastor and all of that in front of our children. Then we turn around and tell our children, why don't you listen to your Sunday school teacher? They're not going to listen to their Sunday school teacher. You don't listen to your teacher. And you've told them in a number of different ways, number of different forums, how they can live like that too. We've torn stuff down block by block and thrown it into the valley. We've torn our marriages down. Listen, I've performed a lot of weddings. And every single kid who stands in front of me, male and female, are enwrapped in love. I mean, I can hardly stand close by them. It's just like oozing with love. I'm Mr. Love standing with all this love. And they just can't wait to get away in their honeymoon together. This is the same two people who five or seven or 13 years later can't stand each other and tear the marriage apart. Listen, people don't tear our marriages apart. We tear them apart ourselves. In tragic proportions. Third, what are you willing to do to rebuild? Matthew 6.33 just jumps out at me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Can I tell you that you can't have Jesus and everything too? Does that come as a shock to anybody in here? Because we we tend to try and live as if that's the way it is. I'm gonna tell you that that what we're talking about in this rebuilding program of neglected faith, you, you gotta bring the S word out. You know what the S word is? Sacrifice. This is not going to be some sort of easy journey as they saw all those boulders laying down in the valley, the ruined walls for 140 years, the disappointment that all the, all the doors were burned down. This was not going to be an easy project. This was going to take sacrifice. This was going to take work. Nehemiah 2, 16 and 18. They use the words work for a reason. It's sacrifice. Jesus will no longer be one of many things you are juggling. He must be everything. I'm trying to wonder in my own heart if if some people in the Christian context came to faith with some guy wearing a a trench coat who said, psst, come here, I got something for you. 
you know, and opened up his trench coat and said, hey, he just, he's Jesus, he's just like an absentee landlord and you get heaven and all this stuff. You want to buy into that? It's like, who sold you that kind of Christianity? That's not Christianity. The Christianity I understand from the scriptures and that came from the very mouth of Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he or she will deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Nothing about that sounds easy. It sounds tough. It sounds sacrificial. It sounds like, hey, the first thing you have to do is deny yourself and take up your cross. And the cross isn't some pretty little gold thing that you wear around your neck. It's an implement of death. And then you got to follow me. This cheap carnival conversion that so many people have allowed to, uh, to, to be their story will not rebuild a neglected wall or put back a door that was burned down. Christianity will cost you your life, at least your life as you thought it would be. Whenever there's a choice to make between Jesus and what you want, it has to be Jesus. When, when people are, are asking the question of, do you want to do this? Do you want to buy that? Do you want to go here? It's, it's like the answer is this. Well, well listen, um, I need you to know that, that my time and my energy and my money go first of all, first priority to the things that matter to God. And then if I have anything left over... Yeah, I'll be happy to do that or buy that or have that. that. That's what the building project is all about. That's what building into our lives with gold and silver and costly stones is all about. It's the radical, practical version of Matthew six thirty three that I really don't think is radical. I think it's exactly what the Lord meant. So what are you willing to do to rebuild? We can't have some sort of evangelical Hinduism around here where you have everything and then you just throw Jesus in too. But what the Lord is selling us is life better than you could have ever imagined or orchestrated yourself. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the goal is. Abundant Life, the life giver, wants to give us the epitome of what life really is. So what should you expect? Fourth question. All kinds of trouble. Wickedness doesn't go quietly into the good night, as we talked about last week. Verse 10 of chapter 1 of, of Nehemiah. There are people who are going to be very uncomfortable and disturbed about these changes in your life. There are people who are going to mock you and ridicule you, verse 19. They're going to say, what, what, what's this you're doing? You're losing your mind? You're becoming, uh, well, you're becoming fanatical. What do you mean, Jesus? It's everything to you. You want to be everything to your children. That, um, are you listening to that uh, crazed preacher by any chance at Calvary? 
because um, he gets on the stage, he gets a little crazy, he gets a little fanatical, he gets a little loopy. It's okay when you talk to him, but man, when he gets on the stage. So what is this you're doing? If you do this, come on, your life is, your life is okay, just like the rest of us. You're going to make the rest of us look bad if you really go that hard after Jesus. Say, what is this, a rebellion, verse 19? Are you rebelling against the king? Are you rebelling against the cultural values around you? Are you rebelling about how you really get, you know, get ahead in the world? Is that what you're going to do? Because if you're going to try that, you're going to take on the school, are you? Are you really going to take on that teacher? Because you don't want him or her cramming bad values down your kid's throat? Is that, are you really going to do that? You think that's going to go well for your kid? You think if you um, have this new passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to go well at the workplace? You're not going to be one of the guys anymore. You're going to be out of the raw stuff. But worse than that, you're going to be out of the promotion stream. You really willing? To, are, are you? Have you thought this through? You really going to write on your biology exam that Jesus made it all? How do you think that's going to go over? I'll tell you how it goes over because I've done this already. I'm a biology major after all. Most of my answers in that arena had two answers. Here's the answer you want me to give you, teacher. But here's what I really believe. I had to get the answer right. But I got my message across too. Are you really prepared to do that and tell your kid to do that? Listen, he had the, um, Nehemiah had the uh, respect of the king. It doesn't mean that we turn our back on everything around us. Sometimes we're going to try and win the, win the day, win our own, moral, our, our own moral vision and our own values and try to influence the marketplace. When it comes time for elections, stop voting party line and start voting according to values that match your values. Just because your father was a conservative or a liberal or an NDP or your grandfather and was handed down as part of the will doesn't mean you have to be. How do you change things? Choose leaders who have values like yours who believe the things you believe. And then you get the endorsement of the state, like Nehemiah got. Well, there's a fifth question that we have to ask, the final question. What convictions do you think you're going to need to get on with it? You know, when the uh, noise, the background noise and chatter is all around you, conflicting pressing against you, opposing you. And it seems very, very energized and very, very strong and very, very scary. What you need to do is what Nehemiah did in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. You need convictions, first of all, of divine support. This has got me through most of my life. 
I, I'm just so convinced that, that God is for us. I'm so convinced that, that God is for his message. I'm so convinced that, that God won't leave us and he won't forsake us. I, I'm so convinced that God will grant success to something that's his project. That it gives a boldness that goes beyond human capacity or, or, or all logic, all physicality. What? We don't have the resources. We don't have the, the, the strength. We don't have the numbers. We don't have this. We don't have that. Why? We have God. God will give us success, Nehemiah said, as he comes into town. Don't talk to me about a king. Listen, kings are important. Mayors are important. Provincial leaders are important. But people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we have God on our side. The living God of the universe. There is no higher authority. We get to go right to the top. God will give us success. The God of heaven. I love what Nehemiah says here. The God of heaven. How does that shake everybody? You know, Sanballat, Tobiah, you come at me with all of your criticisms and all of your... You know, shaking your fist and all of this attempts to distract me and to try and, and, and shout me down. Let me talk to you about who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the God of heaven. That's the mission I'm on. I'm on a mission from the God of heaven. And so are you. That, that's the mission. You're a disciple maker, a, a Christian parent. You're on a mission from the living God. There is no greater authority that is backing you on success. Things that matter to God are not a small thing. Don't make them a small thing. They're a big thing. There's no cultural authority that outranks the authority of the God of heaven, I can tell you that. And he will hand you success. There's a second conviction you must have under convictions, and that's the conviction of who you are. Notice what it says in verse 20. We are his servants. We are servants of the living God. We're employed by God. It all belongs to God. This also simplifies our lives. Whatever you are, wherever you're calling, whatever your station in life, wherever you live, wherever you've been placed, the children that you have and all of that, parenting, your work, your vocation, you are first and foremost a servant of the living God. He has employed you in the great mission of building disciples. That's what it says here in the text. We're his servants. We'll start building. We're going to start rebuilding. We're stewards over the range of people we influence. Whatever vocation you have, it is God's vehicle, God's placement for you to make your first calling, which is disciple-making, happen. There's a third conviction, the conviction that compromise isn't an option. I can't take much time on this, although I'd love to. But he says here, notice at the end of verse 20, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Listen, we need to, we need to understand where our authority comes from and what kind of authority that we actually have and who we are in Jesus Christ and just what other people can do or can't do to us. While the scriptures call us unequivocally to a general obedience to organize the organized state, Romans 13, there's no denying of that. Listen, unbelievers have no authority in spiritual affairs or church affairs. In Jerusalem, if you weren't eligible to participate in temple worship, in other words, if you couldn't participate in the Passover, you couldn't participate in the feasts of unleavened bread or the other feasts, you had no influence in the community of God's people. 
That's the point that Nehemiah is making here to Sanballat and Tobiah. You have no influence. You have no impact. What you say is irrelevant. And I would say to you that that translates into the New Covenant community, the New Testament community in this way, that, that unbelievers have no spiritual authority over us. They have no authority over our church. Unless you are eligible to receive communion, in other words, a true believer, you have no rights and no part in the church. So give them none in your life in terms of spiritual authority. And then, of course, there's syncretism, which is the merging of other religious ideas to dilute or pollute the purity of God's ways. Sanballat stands in for that. It's the sultan of syncretism. Marketing theological junk jargon as if it's direct from the scriptures, direct scriptural truth. Beware of the books that we are reading that aren't the book authored by God. There is no end of so-called Christian literature, and most of us are reading more Christian literature than we are the actual Christian literature. This is Christian literature. All the rest is commentary around it. This is Christian literature. This is where you develop your theological jargon. Some people out there are, are, are acting as if you say something long enough and, and enough times, it becomes true. It doesn't become true because it's said a lot of times or shouted in a lot of places or said by somebody who's high profile. It's only true if it's found in the Word of God. And I want Calvary Baptist Church and everybody connected to us to be very, very shrewd students of what you hear and listen to and make sure that if it isn't from the Word of God, that it isn't, it doesn't become and form your theology. Because one of Satan's great strategies is to pollute and dilute the things of God. So raise your family carefully. If Satan can't obliterate God's word, and he can't, he will try to pollute it or dilute it in your minds. Misrepresenting the nature of God, the authority of, uh, of Satan, the authority of people is rampant among us. And we need to ask everybody who teaches anything, does the Bible actually state anywhere what you are just saying? And in particular, is that exactly what the Bible meant about what you're using it to state? And the worst that is out there is is attempts to shift control into the hands of man and away from God. Well, let me just wrap this up this morning by making about six quick observations in this final conviction that community and organization matters. Some say if it's God's will, he'll take care of it. I don't have to do anything. Just pull up a chaise lounge and I'll be passive. Let go and let God. There's another book I don't like. All right, listen. This is not what Nehemiah teaches us. Nehemiah teaches us, and 1 Corinthians teaches us the same thing. We are fellow builders with God. We are at work. We are busy. We are involved in community, and organization does matter. Planning matters. And can I point out to you that as you look through Nehemiah chapter 3, and I determined in my heart that I wouldn't read this chapter to you today because I can't pronounce hardly any of the words in Nehemiah chapter 3. And I just think there's something wrong with obliterating everybody's name because their name matters to them, and I just don't want to mess it up. And I I got clearance from Lori, um, 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 Lori Nicholson. 
Do not tell her that I forgot her last name. I got clearance from Lori Nicholson this morning that there's probably no memory verses come out of Nehemiah chapter 3. So I think we're safe in, in the, that we don't actually read it. But I want you to read it and I want you to, to pay attention. And let me give you quick, quickly uh, final concluding points. What I notice in, in, the, in the getting going of the building project, all in makes the project manageable. There were 45 different sections, 41 work crews. If everybody does what they can, the project is done. Realize that the, any breach in the wall in, in, in any of our lives, in any of our families, is a breach on the wall of all of us. It matters that all of our families are healthy and strong. It matters that we're all in. Church is only as strong as its weakest units. Open door means it's an open door to the enemy, whichever open door it is. This was a multi-generational, multi-gender, different background, different place kind of enterprise, and all were in. I want you to notice as well, in verse 5, something very disturbing. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. No matter what, not everybody buys into a plan launched by God. Is this a surprise to us in church? You've been in church any time at all in your life. Is it a shock that some people are going to fold their arms and say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to be part of the plan. Guess what? I don't want, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't my plan. I don't care what Rick's teaching. I'm not getting involved. There'll be people who'll just fold their arms all the time and and stand around. They'll come and visit. They'll look at you and they'll look at the project and say, oh, it's an amazing project, but I'm not getting involved in it because I really don't want to work with those people. Uh, I wasn't put in the right place of leadership and I don't buy into the people who were put into leadership, so I'm not going to get involved with this. And so the men of Tekoa stood around and all of that, but here's what the shocking thing of all of this is. God recorded it. Which means God knows. Which says to me, don't be that person. That's what it says to me. Because God takes note of it. He took note of the people who wouldn't put their shoulder to the work or wouldn't submit to the supervisors. It's not the club you want to be in in the church. I noticed something else, that as you read down here, you read things like verse 8, Aziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, Hananiah, one of the perfume makers. What are we talking about here, goldsmiths and perfume makers? This projects are all about people who are willing to step outside of their area of expertise because the issue is so urgent. Some people say, hey, I'm not a prayer guy. I'm not skilled at discipling. I'm not a reader. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to disciple my kids. I, I didn't have good parenting examples as, as I was growing up. Listen, if a perfume maker and a goldsmith and a priest can make a wall, what good is a perfume guy? Just gives you a headache. What good is a little goldsmith guy who can make some little tiny angel out of gold? When you got a big boulder to get out of the valley, and priests, all they can do is talk. Listen, this thing is so urgent that you step out of your comfort zone. I notice also in verse 10, 23, 28 to 30, something very strategic. Look at verse 10 as the example. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumaf, made repairs opposite his house. Six times you're going to see that it's about their house. Fix what's broken at home first. It's a key thing, whether it's your business, your store, your office, your street, your school. This isn't an institutional issue. This is a personal issue that we're talking about here. 
Statistics may seem generic, but they're going to affect your home. This is your family that's in peril. It's my family that's in peril. And I notice here there's 70 different names in this chapter. God cares about names. God cares about people. God is not generic. This is real people, not a fable. Real people on a real job with God leading them. That's what this is all about. Listen, God didn't say to you, hey, um, what I want you to do is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and I want you to love the world as you love yourself. You know why I said, didn't say that? Because that's just generic. I can find all kinds of people in the world that I want to love as much as I love myself. He said, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, that's something different. I didn't pick my neighbor. I just moved in. He moved in. The other guy moves in. The guy moves in across the street. I don't, I don't have anything with them. God knows them. God knows their name. And God wants you to love them. God's a personal God. It's very specific. 70 names of people. And then finally, there's no NIMBY approach here. You see people come from, what does that mean, not in my backyard? You know, some people say, oh, you know what, I've already raised my kids. I'm single. I, I got things going. You know, I'm, I'm okay. Our family's okay. Why are you dragging us all into this project of Nehemiah's? It's not my, don't worry about my back. My backyard's fine. Listen, they have in this text people coming from Jericho. They come from Tekoa. They come from Mizpah. They come from Keilah. What do you think someone's doing coming from Jericho, having to march up to Jerusalem a 1,000 meters high, on the worst road in the world, the most dangerous road in the world. Because the project of God's glory mattered. It is our backyard. It's all our backyards. That God would be glorified among us, those who call themselves children of the living Christ. So the whole gets done. With everybody... When everyone with humility and contentment tackles his or her place of the project. Listen, let me close this way this morning. Jordan, we're just going to close up. The project is to rebuild the walls of Christian distinctiveness and the doors of protection from wickedness. For the glory of God. Because God is going out of style around us. And it is horrifyingly going out of style in some of our homes. So what should you do? What should I do? Start answering these five questions. Has there been drift in my family? Let's get it back. Have I torn down things myself? I got to start rebuilding those things back. I got to go to my kids and say, I have said some horrible things. What are you doing? What are you willing to do to rebuild? You willing to sacrifice? Because it's going to cost. What are your expectations? You think you're not going to have opposition? You think the kids are not going to dig in their heels or someone's not going to criticize you? Of course they will. And then what are your convictions? You got some convictions about this stuff? You got the right convictions? You might be saying this morning, isn't that why we pay pastors and teachers? Isn't this your job? Aren't you supposed to fix us? Viga Olson, a name will be familiar to some of you, a great ABWE statesman who served his whole life almost in Bangladesh, noted this about Nehemiah. 
There's no expert builders or carpenters mentioned in the text. Jerusalem got fixed by goldsmiths, perfume makers, priests, single men, homemaker women, priests' helpers, people just like us. Because this matter of discipleship, it's our job to gather. God's called all of us. We're it. God has chosen to build his church through us. So let's build. Father, I thank you and praise you for your patience with us and your love for us. And I do ask, Lord, that you would absolutely grab our hearts firmly in this task and show us a glimpse of the glory that you have in mind that you want to give to us, I pray. Lord, let this not be viewed as a hardship project, but rather a glory project. We gain abundant life and Jesus Christ is glorified. That's a good project, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.